pretty is as pretty does. One by one, Tom smashed the panes of glass. After all, he had only been on his feet and walking for a week. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed. Some time just about every day filled with stories for you and your family. I'm Sam Payne. What a pleasure to have you with us today. It's going to be a great hour. We've got stories from the great... Donna Ingham, the Texas tall tale teller. We've got stories from Sheila Starks Phillips and Lanny Peterson as well in an episode filled with stories about enduring through accidents and hard situations. More about that a little later. First, we're going to get to an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. You never know what's going to spark a memory. The other day, a social media acquaintance posted for some reason a link to a YouTube video of the first episode of an old TV show called The Voyage of the Mimi from 1984. A little series about a ship setting sail off the coast of Massachusetts to study whales. I think my friend had rediscovered it and posted it because she had learned that it was the TV debut of Ben Affleck who was 12. Anyway, it's a series I watched when I was a kid, along with countless American middle schoolers whose science and math teachers needed a little something to help them engage their classes. So remembering the voyage of the Mimi was in itself kind of a trip back for me. It was fun. But watching that ship from my childhood sail away from the Marblehead shore opened up another memory. Now in this memory, I'm about nine years old. And there's a guy who works with my dad, who, we learn, owns a sailboat. And my dad arranges for himself and my little brother and me to go sailing with this guy one afternoon after work. I mean, sailing. There was a sizable lake that abutted our community, but otherwise we lived in what was really effectively a desert. And the idea of sailing a sailboat out onto a body of water that was just way outside our experience. Impossibly exotic. Dangerous, even. Though we're not at all frightened. After all, my dad will be with us. An amazing adventure this will be. And we're excited almost beyond power of speech. Well, the day comes. My mom drops my brother and me off at dad's work and we're hopping up and down with anticipation as we climb into the car and follow the skipper out to the lake. And here's the thing. The sky, all blue and clear when we set out for the lake, is now a low ceiling of gray clouds by the time we get there. No rain, just a slate gray sky. And the skipper keeps looking up with kind of a worried face, and he tells us that if there's rain, we better not be out on the lake. And we're standing next to the dock where bobs our little craft, painted sky blue, a tiny thing into which we'll fit all four of us, but only just. It's really a little sailboat. From where we're standing, we can peek down into the cabin, and we think maybe one guy could fit down there. It's such a little thing. And the tiny boat sits there under the enormous sky, and we're hoping and praying because... The thought of not getting to sail out on the lake is one we can't even bear. And after all, should there be any actual danger, well, we have our dad there. There's nothing from which 
he can't keep us safe, right? There's no rain now, not even much wind, no lightning or anything, not even way off on the horizon. So the skipper decides it's okay to set sail. Well, he straps us into life jackets and teaches us some of the parts of the little sailboat, tells us about the keel and the mast and the boom and the jib and the mainsail and the tiller. And soon we're scudding across the surface of the lake and the dock is receding behind us and it is everything. We're out on the water, the bow cutting through the surface of the lake, the rising and falling of the boat and the sound of the wind in the sails. It is all we had hoped it would be. And we're out for about 10 minutes when the fabric of my dad's windbreaker begins to whip against his shirt. And the skipper is looking at the sky again. And now there are raindrops and the smooth surface of the lake is whipping into peaks all around us. And everyone in the boat knows the score. Our sailing afternoon has come to an end. The skipper turns the little craft around and we head for the dock, now bobbing distantly far ahead of us. And now things have changed. We're holding onto cleats and handholds and each other as the peaks of the waves grow even higher. The rain stings our faces as we crawl toward the dock. And now it looks not like a gentle rain in which we'll play it safe by heading in, but a surprise squall in which we're fighting for our very safety. And in that squall, I look up at my dad's face, and it's not calm. He's worried. He's watching the dock, hoping, but not entirely sure, that we'll make it back. Well, we do make it back. By the time lightning cracks across the sky, we're safely in the car, out of sight of the lake. And soon, we're safely in our beds. It's a while before I go to sleep, lying there awake. I realize it's a different world than it had been this morning. For now, after a storm at sea, I realize a thing that we all learn, I guess, that there are troubles in the world that are bigger than my father's ability to keep me safe. The world was bigger than it had ever been, and my father, just a tiny sailor like me, well, we've sailed a lot together since then. I mean, I mean that figuratively. We actually haven't done much actual sailing since then. We've just sailed through a lot of life together. And sometimes he's helped me through the storm. Sometimes I've helped him. But both of us all the time are just a little more awestruck than we used to be by the journey itself. Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we share here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Again, a lot coming up. We've got stories from Donna Ingham and Sheila Starks Phillips and Lanny Peterson. But first, a little conversation with a friend. Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from 
radio and podcasts, through songs, and of course on screen too. And we're exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds. That's just one of the things we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined by Rod Gustafson, a longtime member of our BYU radio family and an even longer time movie lover, having watched and reviewed thousands of movies for families over many years. Rod, such a pleasure to have you on The Appleseed. Thank you, Sam. Good to be here again. You know, I asked Rod a question, and the question is a question that you might want to think about with the people that you love. And the question is, what's one movie that you think every family should see? Hmm. And I have such a hard time with that because I have a long list of movies that I, <laughs> I think every family should see. This one, though, this one's a little more serious. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for maybe the 10 and overcrowd and parents, I always say, watch movies with your kids. Yeah. Enjoy it together. But this one especially. And this one is Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. This is a story, if you recall, of uh, involving C.S. Lewis and uh, a romance that he had. Um, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins playing C.S. Right? Lewis. And this is my favorite Anthony. Anthony Hopkins film. Mm. And um, I, I, what Shadowlands, Shadowlands taught me something. I, I, I'm going to move out of the movie for a moment and yeah. tell you a little bit about, this is one of my inner, one of my inner problems, Sam. When, <laughs> when our children were younger, we have four kids, my wife Donna and I, and they wanted a pet. Kids yeah. always want pets. And I really didn't want to get a pet. I mean, first of all, I've got some allergies and, you know, I knew it was just going to be, you know, more work. You don't yeah. want more work when you got four little kids. But the real reason, I hate to confess this, but here it is, the public confession. I have a bad habit of always thinking about the end mm. rather than the beginning. And I'm thinking in my head, no matter what pet we get, I'm going to have to go through the death yeah. scene. And my kids are going to have to go through that. And it's not, I mean, I'm going to be sad that the pet dies, but what I'm really going to be sad about is my kids having to go through this. Working through that with your kids. Working yeah. through that with your kids, which, you know, and I started feeling like, why do I feel this way? And I, and then I started thinking, well, maybe we should get a parrot. I hear some of them live 80 years. <laughs> I'll be gone. I won't have to worry about it. But no, the kids didn't want a parrot. Yeah. So finally, accounting for allergies and everything else, my wife and I go to the animal shelter and we come home with a couple of guinea pigs. Mm. So when we bring them home in this box and we unveil the box, and I'll never forget my kids looking at these guinea pigs like they were just on fire. <laughs> this was so exciting. And of course, one of the guinea pigs only lived a couple of years yeah. and died on a very, very busy day that was very traumatic for my oldest son who had some, he had a test at school, you know, in sixth grade or whatever, but it felt like it was a big deal. Yeah. And, and, um, and then the other one eventually died while I was at a, um, well, I was at a film critics thing in Los Angeles. I'm sitting on the beach yeah. and my poor wife's back home in Canada handling this. Anyhow, the reason that Shadowlands is an important movie to me is it has a great message about the joy that comes from the risk of loving someone yeah. or loving something. But in this case of loving my children and who am I to want to rob them of the joy of having a pet because I'm worried about, you know, what's going sure. to happen. And as Anthony Hopkins in this movie goes through this, this romance with a woman, her name was Joy. Yeah. And the movie really sets it up. And by the way, there's a lot of inaccuracies in this movie that the true C.S. Lewis diehard fans are going to say, well, why did they do that? But the point is... <laughs> as so with, many movies yeah, are, As right? so many it's, movies they, do. It's a movie. Yes. Right? But yeah. the point is within the movie, it does just as spectacular 
spectacular job of showing the C- of C.S. Lewis working through this of letting a person into his life that he's loved so dearly. You know, in in reality, I think it was three years later in the movie, it's months later, she gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. Yeah. And then he has to go through the loss. It's handled so beautifully, so intelligently, Mm -hmm. so gently. Yes. That it's a good way to get into some of those topics. It is. uh, With people sort of across... Mm-hmm. ages, mm-hmm. right? It is. It yeah. really is. And it's a very gentle film with beautiful cinematography, by the way. It released on Blu-ray yeah. recently, and uh, it looks great. Deborah Winger Deborah as Winger. Joy Gresham. Yes, as yeah. Joy, yeah. And, <laughs> and it really does, it really does open. It's a great discussion film, if you watch it with your kids, about about that important topic that, yeah. unfortunately, it's part of mortality that we're going to face. face. But I think, in my opinion, it is one of the best message movies for covering that type of, uh, for covering that discussion. And I think, yeah, again, older children, I think could really benefit from that. Kids who love the Narnia books or other writings of Mm C.S. Lewis. And they can learn more about him. Sure, yeah. We'll we'll find kind of biographical, the biographical background behind the the, the, the author of some of those And there's a couple of little hints about Narnia in there because Joy's son comes. She only has one son in the movie. And the the first thing he walks into C.S. Lewis's house, he wants to see the wardrobe, of course. Of course. (laughs) Which is a really cute scene. There's a beautiful book published. Published uh, posthumously after C.S. Lewis passed on, a book called A Grief a Observed. Grief. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is, of course, Bought his, that for my wife for her birthday a few years back. Yeah, his yeah. thoughts uh, subsequent to the passing mm-hmm. of, well, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a lot of his thoughts as she was ill yes. and passing on. Yes. But then, of course, his, his grief in journals and letters and things like the that. The only thing I don't like about this movie is that he questions God more in the movie than in reality. Yeah. If you read his writings, his faith is strong and is restored yeah. even after going through this loss, but still a very beautiful film. Well, a lovely film, and what a nice answer to the question, what's a movie that every family should see? Shadowlands <laughs> is available. Well, again, we live in an era where movies are easier than ever to find yes. and access. Yes, and it's finally, enjoy. it was really difficult to get for years. It was out of print, but now most of the streaming platforms have it. Yeah. Well, Rod Gustafson, thank you so much for joining us here on The Appleseed. It was a wonderful opportunity. It's always a pleasure to share a conversation with a friend about some of the ways that important stories come into our lives. Whether stories are passed along from telling to telling or preserved in the pages of great books, in radio and podcasts like The Appleseed, through meaningful songs or the things we see on screen, great stories are worth talking about. And we love to talk about them with our friends. We hope you enjoy it too. And if the things we've talked about in today's conversation spark memories for you or introduce you to things that you might like to share with the people that you love, then we're doing it just just about right. Lots more coming up. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more stories. A story up next from Donna Ingham. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard an entry in the Radio Family Journal and a conversation with Rod Gustafson about the great film Shadowlands. And uh, up next, we've got all kinds of great stories coming up for you. We've got a story from Donna Ingham. We've got a story from Sheila Starks Phillips, one from Lanny Peterson. And these are all about enduring through accidents and hard situations. We all know that accidents happen. That's a time-old sort of adage passed from generation to generation to try to help people through tough situations. And it's true. Accidents happen. And often there's no one to really blame for the consequences, but consequences there are, of course, right? Now, whether someone is trying to work past an old fear or has to go through rehab or physical therapy or another hardship, there's always more strength in one person's courage and determination than there is in any problem. That's what we like to think. And often through these experiences, people are able to find hope and faith beyond what they might have had without the experience. Accidents do happen, and though that's a hard truth, often in life it's less about the accident and more about how you get through it, how you handle it, how you learn from it. And we're going to listen to a story here from Donna Ingham. And when I say we, I mean, of course, you and me, but also in the studio, I'm joined by Ashley Zollinger, one of our assistant producers. Ashley, it's great to have you with me. It's great to be here. Donna Ingham is a favorite of mine. Uh, she's an English professor, and she is a, a wonderful teller of, of tall tales and other kinds of stories, too. Tell us a little bit about the bicycle story. Yeah, so this story is all about how she is learning to ride a bike in a little bit later in life. Um, she Learning a new language or learning to ride a bike or anything along those lines can yeah. be a difficult experience. And she, in thus learning to use this different kind of bicycle, gets into an accident. And she always had to get back on and do what her father told her when she was younger of like getting back on the horse that throws you. <laughs> it's from a collection called Waiting for Roy and Other Family Tales. Roy in Waiting for Roy, by the way, is Roy Rogers, the great <laughs> cowboy. Donna Ingham here with the bicycle story here on The Appleseed. I grew up in a family that had a lot of family sayings. Most people do. I can go all the way back to my great-grandfather on my daddy's side. He was a man of few words, but when he spoke, he spoke in Proverbs. He lived with my paternal grandparents in Amarillo, Texas, and we would go to Amarillo every year sometime during the Christmas holidays. I remember one year when I was still in elementary school, we were there and I was out in the front yard of my grandparents' house playing with my boy cousins. For one thing, my boy cousins were nearer my age than my girl cousins, and besides, I grew up a real tomboy. Well, my boy cousins had learned how to whistle through their teeth, and they taught me how to whistle through my teeth. I was so proud of my newly acquired skill that I went into the front room of my grandparents' house practicing. My great-grandfather, Grandpap, we called him, was sitting where he always sat in his old oak rocker in front of what we call the fireplace. It wasn't really a fireplace. It was just a mantle with an old open flame stove in it. He sat sideways to it so that he was actually facing the front wall of the house. 
So when I walked through the front door whistling, he said, as if he were talking to the wall, but this was clearly meant for me, a whistling girl and a crowing hen will come to no good end. So I quit whistling, at least in front of him. Another Christmas we were there again, and I got as a gift that year one of those little autograph books. So I went around to all the assembled relatives asking them to sign my book. When I got to Grandpap, I guess he was still remembering the whistling episode because he wrote, Pretty is as pretty does, and signed it W.W. Davis just in case I didn't know what his real name was. Now I'm going to skip a generation because the next sayings I remember came from my parents. My mother would occasionally wax literary when she gave me advice, and she did have good taste. She liked Shakespeare. One of her favorite sayings comes from the play Hamlet. It's part of the advice Polonius gives to Laertes before Laertes goes off to France. Now, Polonius is portrayed as a bit of a fool in that play, but he does give good advice. He said, To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. Other times, my mother was much more practical and to the point. Especially when I was going on a trip, for example, she would say, Always wear clean underwear because you never know when you might be in a wreck. And she had one sort of all-purpose question that covered a multitude of possible sins. She would just look at me and say, What would the neighbors think? Now, my dad was an old cowboy, so I grew up riding horses. I had a horse before I could even walk. And even before that, my daddy would take me up in front of him on his horse. If I ever fell off of or got thrown off of one of those horses, which did happen on more than one occasion, my dad would say, you've got to get back up on the horse that throws you. And I would. But when we moved from Brownfield, Texas, where I was born and spent my early growing up years, to Amarillo, where my grandparents lived, I became something of a city girl. I still had a horse, but I didn't have easy access to her. So I started riding bicycles. I was in third grade when I got my first bicycle. It was a hand-me-down from my daddy's little sister because this was in the years not long after the end of World War II, and new bicycles were still hard to come by. It was blue, my aunt's bicycle was, but I was still thinking horses, I guess, and I was in my Palomino period. So I painted the bicycle yellow with white stripes. I must have ridden hundreds of miles in my neighborhood on that bicycle, sometimes motorizing it by clothespinning old playing cards in between the spokes, faster I pedaled, the faster my motor ran. When I was in seventh grade, I got my first brand new bicycle. It was green, and it was a boy's bicycle, because I was still a tomboy, but mostly I wanted the beep-beep horn that was built into the bar connecting the seat to the handlebars. It would be years and years and years later before I got another brand new bicycle. I was already out of college, working, married, 
and my husband and I bought matching Schwinn bicycles, also green. We were in our fitness period. I put a basket on the front of my bike and rode it mostly to the grocery store and back. Then in the summer of 2003, my husband and I went to Germany for a month. We spent the first three weeks in the north and east of Germany visiting friends. They toured us everywhere, and we walked and walked and climbed and walked and walked. So by the time we drove south to Bavaria, we were footsore and weary. By this time, we were in our pooped period. The first night we were in Munich... My husband brought up a brochure from the lobby of our hotel. It was advertising bicycle tours of Munich. Riding a bicycle instead of walking, now that was a good idea. We went down to the train station the very next day and found the bicycle rental place. We signed right up for a tour. Our guide was a young Australian man named David. David took one look at our gray hair and said, How long has it been since you rode a bicycle? And I lied. I didn't mean to lie. I just said the first numbers that came into my head. I said, Oh, four or five years. Later, when that statistic was more relevant to our situation, I realized it had been more like 10, 15 maybe 20 years since we'd really ridden bicycles. Furthermore, I remembered that I learned to ride a bicycle on the flat plains of Texas, where we needed only one speed, and all I had to do to stop was step back on the pedals to use those coaster brakes. Now, here we were, climbing aboard 21-speed bicycles with hand brakes. David explained how the gears worked and which brake went to which wheel, and I swear I was listening, but my retention was not good that day. We did fine in downtown Munich because it's flat, and Munich is a very bicycle-friendly city. It has designated bicycle lanes. If any errant pedestrian happened to step into the lane, all David had to do was ring the bell on his handlebars and the pedestrian would step right out. Then we got to what I thought was going to be my favorite part, a ride out along the Isar River and into Englisher Park. But that's where the hills are. At first we went up a hill. I turned the gears the wrong way, and that made it so hard to pedal that I had to get off the bicycle and push it up the hill. David was very tolerant. He smiled and reset the gears and said, That's okay. Anyway, now we're going to go downhill. Good, I said. David headed out first, followed by my husband. I brought up the rear. The hill was long and steep. I was watching to see which way David turned at the bottom of the hill and realized that I was going way too fast and was bordering on being out of control. I knew not to bother with the gears, so I started squeezing on those handbrakes both of them. I squeezed harder and harder and harder. Now, I don't remember the exact moment of impact, but as nearly as we could figure, 
I either skidded or simply didn't negotiate the turn at the bottom of the hill and managed to slam that bicycle into a sort of fence-like wooden barricade. And that pretty effectively stopped the bicycle. But it didn't stop me. I went flying off the bicycle into that barricade and broke myself. I broke a collarbone, cracked a rib, collapsed a lung, broke my elbow and my little finger, and wound up with a couple of compression spinal fractures. But even then, even then, I knew how lucky I was. I was alive. I wasn't paralyzed. I would heal. And I had on clean underwear. I spent a week in a German hospital, and then we flew home. A couple of surgeries followed and months of physical therapy. My husband and I bonded in new and totally unexpected ways because he had to help me get dressed and eat. He helped me do my hair. He held the hair dryer. I wielded the brush, and somehow we'd get all the hair going the same direction. He was my biggest cheerleader at therapy sessions and encouraged me to practice my guitar to rehab my hand. And he told everyone his new job was driving Miss Donna. As Christmas approached in 2003, I was still wearing a back brace and popping ibuprofen. I looked for any excuse to lie down on the couch on my heating pad, and I was still taking physical therapy. But I got one gift that Christmas that was truly inspired such a testimony to my husband's faith that I would be a hundred percent well. For on that Christmas morning, he gave me a bright and shiny burgundy-colored 21-speed bicycle with handbrakes. And he said to me, he said, You know what your daddy always used to say? You've got to get back up on the horse that throws you. And so I have. Ah, the bicycle story by Donna Ingham. Ashley, I'll tell you, I am completely awash in memories. Oh, really? (laughs) I don't know if you have. I don't know if you have good or bad memories from learning how to ride a bike. Uh, Both. Both. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you, I I I got my first bike when I was seven years old. Uh, Mm. I got it for. Christmas, or no, I got it for my birthday at my grandparents' house in California, 700 miles away from where I lived. And so my grandfather taught me how to ride a bike, My kind of a team of my grandpa and my dad. (laughs) And boy, bumps and bruises, and I would absolutely have quit, except that my dad and my grandpa said, no, you you can't quit. You just got to keep doing it. And lots of bumps and bruises Mm -hmm. later, I knew how to ride a bike and and was so happy. Brought with it a sense of freedom that I had never experienced before. And it's such a pleasure to listen to that story by Donna Ingham, the great Texas tall tale teller, the bicycle story. Thanks so much, Ashley, for bringing that story to us. Thank you. We got a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Sheila Starks Phillips and one from Lanny Peterson all this hour on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. We'll see you in a minute. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a terrific story from one of my favorite tellers, Donna Ingham, the Texas storyteller, talking about riding a bike in Munich after being away from it for a long time. And you got a little bit in that story about the hardship of wrecking on that bike and, of course, about getting through the hardship, getting back up on the horse that throws you, as Donna Ingham's dad used to say, and making it through with a little help from her husband. Uh, We're going to bring you a a few more stories about hardships and how people got through them. Up next, we've got a story about a football accident. Ever known anybody to get in a football accident? Well, Sheila Starks Phillips knows just such a person. This is from a collection called Family, Friends, and Other Fun Folks, and the story is called Chris's Accident, here on The Appleseed. The woman adjusted her skirt as she sat in the back seat of the car. It was cloth upholstery which always made her skirt hike up when she slid across the seat to get in. She looked toward the front seat. Her husband sat in the driver's seat while her son, her baby boy as she called him much to his chagrin, sat on the passenger side. Do your children ever stop being your babies? She thought not, even though this baby boy was now 15 years old. His brother and sister were still her babies, too. They were both students at Texas A&M and would be at the stadium to share this night, this night of triumph. For just a moment, she squeezed her eyes shut and tried to relax. What a night this was going to be. What an incredible night. As she looked at the back of her son's head, she shuddered to herself as she saw where the screws entered his head on both sides. She remembered when the hospital personnel had wheeled him out of the emergency room that night a lifetime ago. She had seen those screws and had thought they were clamps. And then when she realized that those huge things that looked as big around as her little finger were actually screwed into his head, her precious baby's head. She thought she might faint. They call the weird contraption a halo. Interesting name for something her son might wear. He was hardly an angel. No, he was a typical young teenage boy, just starting to develop into a man. Good-looking, athletically gifted, full of fun and mischief and the apple of his mama's eyes. How thin he looked sitting stiff and straight in the front seat. The weight had fallen off of him seemingly overnight. Amazing how quickly one's muscles atrophy when not used. The woman's glance drifted over to her husband's side of the car. They had become allies during this ordeal. All of the tension between them was gone and had been replaced with a true support of each other. Some of the woman's friends had told her they thought when the accident happened that the two of them would put their marriage back together. She was incredulous when she heard them say that. Could a child's accident right all the wrongs that had built up over the years? Not likely. The accident. Ah, yes, the accident. She closed her eyes and thought back to that night, the first week of September, Perfect football weather. 
It was the first game of the season. Her precious boy would be a starter for his school's team. The woman had driven out to the stadium with her husband. They arrived and had taken their seats just before the opening kickoff. The opposing team took the kick and both teams began running. The play ended on the other team's 27-yard line, but someone did not get up after the referee's whistle blew. It took the woman a few moments to realize it was her boy lying motionless on the field. Both the woman and her husband stayed in their seats, anxious and nervous, while the adults on the field hovered around their boy who lay in a crumpled heap on the grass. How many times had this boy and his brother threatened her with the admonition to not embarrass them and come running out on the field should they get hurt playing football or baseball? Oh, mother, they had both cried. Do you want to humiliate us in front of everybody? That night, she sat on the edge of her seat in the bleachers and stared out onto the field. No one moved him, and she wondered why. It looked as if his arms were both pinned at a bad angle beneath his body. Finally, her husband got up very casually and said he thought he'd just walk down to the field and see what was going on. She sat there alone. She could feel people's eyes on her, and she could hear their whispers as they speculated on what had happened. At last, she could stand it no longer, and she got up from her seat and ran down to the field. Someone helped her over the fence, and she ran out upon the field, her shoes sinking into the soft, thick grass. She bent down to speak to her son. He was conscious and had a weak smile on his face, but his voice sounded small and scared. Someone tried to reassure her and said it was probably just a light concussion, but they were not going to move him until they could brace his neck. His neck. Always the optimist, the woman accepted the concussion theory and felt much better. Never in a million years did she think it could be... Laughter from the front seat jolted the woman back to the present. Her husband and son were sharing a good joke. They could see the lights of the football stadium up ahead. Cars were still pulling into the parking area, the lot attendant collecting the fee as they passed through the gate. The woman's mind drifted again. She felt suddenly very weary and closed her eyes. It had been a stressful few months. First, the doctors had said he would never walk again, but would be paralyzed for the rest of his life. Then they said, well, perhaps he would be able to stand with the help of braces on his legs. And then it was, well, maybe he would be able to walk with crutches. And now, here he was, after two successful surgeries, and he could actually walk. However unsteady, but could actually walk. This was the first time he had been out of the hospital since that night. The doctors had given him permission to go to his school's homecoming game. It was going to be quite an occasion. Her husband's barber had been so kind, he had come to the hospital to give the boy a haircut for the big event. Boys were wearing their hair pretty long then, and the surgeons, being sensitive to the feelings of a teenage boy, had shaved his head right off the back for the surgery, but had left all that long top hair in place so that when it was combed down, you couldn't really see that he was completely bald underneath.
Their car had arrived at the field house next to the stadium, the very same field house they had brought him into the night of the accident, and the ambulance had come and taken them both away. The woman jumped out of the car the minute it stopped and began getting the wheelchair out of the back seat. The only way the doctors would give their permission for the boy to leave the hospital was if he would ride in a wheelchair. After all, he had only been on his feet and walking for a week. What an accomplishment that had been. It had taken days for him to even be tilted up on a slant board, and then had progressed to sitting in a chair, and now here he was, actually walking. The woman's husband helped the boy out of the car and into the wheelchair, and they began the long walk into the stadium. It was hard to push the chair on the gravel path. Once inside of the bleachers, the boy said he wanted to walk the rest of the way. Oh, no, said the woman. The doctor said you had to stay in the wheelchair. No, said the boy, already starting to get up from the chair. I want to walk into the stadium. And walk he did. With mom on one side and dad on the other, the boy walked into that stadium. Unsteady and shaky, but walking by himself all the same. There was a roar from the bleachers. The crowd had spotted the boy coming through the entrance, and a loud cheer went up. The cheerleaders ran out to escort the boy to the sidelines. The coach ran up and said, You're the captain tonight. Go out on the field for the coin toss. Tears welled up in the woman's eyes as she watched him go, ever so unsteadily through the thick grass to the center of the field. She lifted her eyes to the heavens and said softly, Thank you, Lord God. And then as she watched the boy walk back off the field, this time flanked by his brother and sister who had driven in from College Station, that's when I said right out loud, That's my boy. Chris's Accident a story by Sheila Starks Phillips here on The Apple Seed. We've been bringing you stories about people facing hardships and getting through them with their own determination and the help of the people around them who love them. And up next, a story from the great Minnesota teller Kevin Kling, a personal story about an accident and the remarkable fortitude that it took for Kevin to push through that accident and get on with his life. It's a great story from Kevin Kling here on The Apple Seed. When we were kids, my brother and I had a three and a half horse Briggs and Stratton engine. And that engine went into everything the mini bike, then into the go kart, then to the boat, to the go kart, back to the mini bike. We'd bolt the engine to a frame, and if there was time, we'd hook up the brakes. We lived by the theory of why stop if you can't get going in the first place? This tactic usually ended up with one of us in the emergency room, where we were on a first-name basis with most of the staff. Now, if my brother was getting stitched up, I would sit back in the waiting room and read Highlight Magazine. In it, there were cartoons like The Timber Toes, The Bear Family, a family of bears so perfect they made the family circus look dysfunctional. There was a page where one could search for the hidden objects, such as an anvil, a top hat, and a hatchet, in the field of dancing unicorns. But best of all was Goofus and Gallant, a story based on the lives of two boys, Goofus and Gallant. 
Gallant exemplified good behavior, goofus bad. Good behavior, bad. Goofus and gallant. They were written in the present tense. For example, gallant cleans his room. Goofus sees if oily rags will burn in the window well. Gallant eats his vegetables. Goofus wonders what's inside a squirrel. What I liked was there was no recourse to either behavior. They were simply different approaches to life, and I was naturally drawn to Goofus. But I realized even then we're all made up of a little Goofus and a little Gallant. On August 11th, my Goofus got on his motorcycle, my Gallant put on his helmet, and when I came to the intersection of Lindale Avenue and Lake Street in South Minneapolis, a car pulled in front of me, and before I or Goofus or Gallant could touch the fully functional brakes, I crashed. Over the next several hours, I was in sections of the newspaper I'd never known and headed for one section I very much wanted to avoid. I felt death brush twice and had one full-blown conversation. I remember very clearly having the choice to come back here or move on, and neither seemed a wrong choice, but I decided to come back, even though I knew there would be consequences. At this point, I know there were people praying and sending well wishes, and it's hard to deny the power of prayer when you're on the receiving end of it. I know it helped me heal. At times, it was like skiing behind a powerboat. All I had to do was hang on. I was also on morphine. Oh, morphine, you wonderful evil. Morphine is great because there is no pain. From running marathons, I know when somebody says you're looking good, you're probably not. But on morphine, people would say, you're looking good. And I'm thinking, hey, I already know it. And if I could get up or open my eyes, I'd bust a move right here. But oh, the price you pay. When morphine takes over, it takes over everything. All reality is morphine reality. I had no idea what was real. You cannot convince me that half of my stay in the hospital was not on top of an Italian mountaintop, or Gianni Versace wasn't visiting me to discuss facelifts, or there weren't two guys in my room spying on me dressed up as televisions. So while Versace and I discussed the intricacies of my new facelift, my girlfriend, Mary, brought in photographs so the plastic surgeons could put my face back the way it was. There was some concern from my buddies, though, because in one picture I was holding the dog. As terrible as this was, and as scared as I am sometimes, I still feel blessed. I'm happy to be alive and have such incredible people in my life. My buddy Steve wrote from Seattle to say I'd done what his wife had been trying to get him to do for seven years. He went to the synagogue to pray, just in case they were the chosen people. My buddy Herringbone wrote from up north to say all this time on my back was actually good practice for ice fishing. Friends started showing up, brought books on tape to help me through. I found Harry Potter got me to sleep at night, and when I couldn't go to the bathroom, Tom Brokaw's greatest generation got the nation moving again. Through all this time, my family was at the front. Mary, my mom, my sister Laura, and my brother Steve, who got me off a liquid diet by saying, wouldn't a cocktail weenie taste good right now? You know, in that red sauce? I was out of those wires in a week. The doctors couldn't believe it, but man, I had to have a cocktail weenie. Now most of my life revolves around rehab and Velcro. There was extensive damage done to my right arm, so I don't have feeling or motor skills yet. And I have a congenital birth defect with my left arm, so up until now it's never done much work. I've taken to calling my left arm Scarlet, as in Scarlet O'Hara, 
Because before it was like, bring me a Coke with some chipped ice. But now it's got to do everything, poor Scarlet. Whenever I get depressed, I just take a look at our two wiener dogs. You'll never see more of a can-do attitude in a can't-do body than a wiener dog. And I know it doesn't matter whether you're goofus or gallant. You never know when something could happen. It's been said that God loves stories so much that he created people so there would be an endless supply. And I'm thankful I've been given the chance to rework my ending. A story from Kevin Kling about a life-changing accident, a story that ends with him expressing thanks. Well, and we've got one more tale, this one called Broken Glass. It's Lanny Peterson, the storyteller, in a collection called Stories Within, kind of an underdog story that you're sure to enjoy. Here's Broken Glass by Lanny Peterson on The Appleseed. have studied in many schools under the brilliance of many teachers, but one teacher stands out for me, and his name was Tom. I didn't meet Tom in university or in graduate school, but in an evening art course at an adult education center. It was under Tom's teaching that I first began to understand the importance of process more than product. There was something about the way he brought his passion to his work that each of us enjoyed and learned from the process of making our creations and became less invested in the final product itself. As the 10-week course unfolded, I became more and more intrigued with how this teacher became who he was and learned to teach in a way that brought out the best in every one of us. And so it happened on the last night when the others had all said goodbye, I stayed behind to ask Tom how he had become the teacher who he now was. I was just an ordinary kid, really, he began, a football-playing, fun-loving, girl-gawking senior in high school. But all that changed, he went on, the night that he was hit by a car. With his backpack on and his arms loaded down with football gear, he didn't stop to look both ways before crossing the street in that dusky evening. And when the car hit him, Tom was lucky to be alive, although he didn't think so at the time. He had broken his neck and his back, and after more than a month of traction in the hospital, he was sent home with a large supportive structure to keep his neck and back straight and sent for another month of bed rest. Although his back began to heal, his spirits daily sank as he became more and more aware of all that he was missing. As the weeks stretched on, he gave up hope of senior prom, graduation, and the prospect of college in the fall. And each morning when his mother would come to the room and say, get up, Tom, let's go out and take a walk, you'll feel better, he would turn his back to her and refuse. The morning that Tom's mother came to his room and he responded to her request by picking up the bedside lamp and smashing it against the wall was the morning they both knew something had to change. 
Tom lay in bed, regretting his action, waiting for his mother to return. But she did not come back to knock on his door for several hours. When she did, she simply said, follow me. He pulled himself up from the bed with aching muscles and quietly followed her to the top of the basement stairs. There she handed him a pair of protective glasses, leather gloves, and a hammer. Gingerly, he made his way to the bottom of the stairs, where he found the stacks of old storm windows waiting for him. If you have to break something, Tom, said his mother, break something we don't need. Smash these. Mom, he said, this feels silly. Smash them, Tom. Slowly, he raised his hammer with muscles that ached in not having been used for months and gently tapped one of the glass panes. Small shards of glass fell to the floor. One by one, Tom smashed the panes of glass, picking up speed and energy with each crash of glass to the floor. It took but a few minutes for all the windows of glass and wood to be smashed to crumbles on the floor. And there Tom dropped his hammer, his gloves, and his glasses, and with tremendous fatigue made his way back to the top of the stairs, to his room, to fall into a deep sleep onto his bed. The next morning, and for several mornings thereafter, Tom's mother appeared at his door with hammer, glasses, and gloves in hand, and Tom proceeded into the cellar to build mounds of broken glass on the floor. His mother spent her afternoon scouring the neighborhood for old storm windows that people no longer needed. It was on the 14th day when Tom's mother appeared in his doorway that he finally said, Mom, I don't think I need to do this anymore. Then you'll do it one more time, she said. And he made his way with greater energy down to the cellar, and there, looking at the last pile of storm windows, he raised his hammer and paused for just a moment. His eyes scoured the mounds of broken glass surrounding him. And for the first time, he noticed the sunlight coming from the high window, catching the mounds of light and sparkling a jeweled dance on the walls. He leaned down and picked up a small shard of glass and laid it in the palm of his hand and noticed its irregular beauty. Carefully, he searched a large pile of glass to find a partner that might fit next to it neatly side by side. For the next hour, Tom chose piece by piece, lining them up in the palm of his hand to create a beautiful design. He left the other storm windows intact as he bounded up the stairs to find his mother. Let's go out, he said. And they went to a store not to buy plain see-through sheets of glass, but brightly colored glass of red and green, of ocean blue and sunlight yellow. He returned home with his treasures and brought them down to the basement, cleared a space on the workbench, and laid them out. He did not choose a hammer as his tool, but chose a glass cutter and carefully etched lines in his beautiful colors and matched them up into brilliant designs. It was just about two weeks later 
that Tom emerged from the cellar triumphant to find his mother in the kitchen. Slowly from behind his back, he pulled a magnificent stained glass lamp to replace the one he had smashed so many months earlier. Tom went on to become a master artisan in the art of stained glass. And when I came upon him many years later, he was well-renowned in his craft. And each morning, when I come down to breakfast, I gaze at the beautiful stained glass medallion which now sits in my window as a result of that course I took so many years ago. And when I see the dance of color it makes on my kitchen walls, I think of Tom. And I also think of people who have had the courage to take things that are broken and find beautiful ways to put them back together again. Lanny Peterson with Broken Glass here on The Appleseed. What a pleasure to bring you these stories today. And, of course, you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. Hundreds of episodes, thousands of stories for your listening pleasure there anytime you like. And, of course, find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts as well. Subscribe to the podcast for something new just about every day here on The Appleseed. Thanks to Ashley Zollinger for her help in producing today's episode. And, of course, The Appleseed is produced by Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Bain. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.